Hey there, marketing friends, it's Misty. Thanks so much for listening in to this episode of Marketing Sweats. In this season, I'm sitting down with female leaders in traditionally male-dominated fields to learn not only about their organizations, but the issues impacting them, and also to gain insight into lessons they've learned throughout their careers. Today, I'm talking with the Corporate Communications Director of Agco Corporation, Erin Drowdy. Erin has more than 17 years experience with construction and agriculture OEMs. Prior to joining Agco, she held various sales and marketing positions with William Scotsman and Dusan Bobcat. She now supports media relations for the C-suite and oversees all Agco corporate websites as well as social and global recruitment marketing. I'm excited to hear Erin's perspective on corporate agriculture and learn about the evolution of the industry and initiatives her organization is championing. So let's get to it. Welcome, Erin Drawdy. I'm very excited to have you on the show today. Erin is the Corporate Communications Director with Agco Corporation. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Missy. I'm really happy to have you here. Like I said, Samantle has followed the Agco brand for some time. Agriculture is definitely one of our key industries, and, and you being in marketing communications is something that's near and dear to my heart, so I'm so grateful that you joined us today. Let's start with a little bit about your story. I always like to know how you came up in the world and kind of how you found yourself in these sort of heavy industry spaces. Yeah, so I grew up in Maine, a little far away from Atlanta, where I where home is now, very Norman Rockwell uh, upbringing, I would say. <laughs> we summered near Acadia National Park with all my cousins. We spent our entire summers there, which now I'm like, how did we spend all that time there? But it was great. I went to the University of Maine. And then shortly after I said, I'm going to head south, I went to University of Maine for marketing, but slowly made my way down 95. And after being in Florida for a long period of time, have landed in Atlanta. Interesting. Okay. So you went to University of Maine for a marketing degree. What was it about your childhood or your upbringing that led you to be focused on marketing and creative and sales and those sorts of things? My dad worked for Ford and he was in marketing. And I think just seeing him in, in that career when I was growing up and he moved on to other other industries, but was always in marketing and consulting. So seeing that and really wanted to uh, pursue that like he did. Yeah. And there's so many similarities between sort of the auto industry and the heavy equipment industry. So I'm sure you make those connections quite a bit. Cool. We'll talk a little bit about after college, getting your career journey started. I think it's interesting that you worked at William Scotsman and then Doosan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So where did you go from there? You know, after college, I, I made my way to Florida. I worked in the modular construction industry for almost a decade. Like you said, the car business is very similar to they're all OEMs. Modular construction really follows that life cycle of the construction business. So I worked with a lot of big contractors, found myself traveling around the country in my 20s and early 30s. I said to somebody the other day, they were talking about eating alone because they were traveling. I said, I think I spent most of my 20s eating alone. Like, but it was great. Like I said, I got to meet with huge contractors and learn their businesses and see huge projects. And towards the end of my experience there was when they started building modular components for buildings. And so they had done it, you know, in the 70s and 80s, but I think it kind of faded away. And then 
as I was, like I said, coming out of that career, you started to see more of that. Like they were mass producing like 500 bathrooms or 500 for a hotel or a hospital or something like that. So that was really, that was really cool to see that evolution and see that kind of come back around where there's labor shortages. So you could mass produce in the factory and then come through that way. So cool. So as a young 20 something coming out of school and, and working in these sorts of industries, what drew you to stay in these fields? Again, I think it was a lot of the similarities. I already knew these big contractors. And so it was easy to to make that that next switch to Bobcat at the time. I had met somebody that was with Bobcat years before and kind of kept talking to them. And, and I remember going to one of my big customers at the time and saying, you know, I'm thinking about switching to Bobcat. Do you think that would be okay? And they were like, absolutely. Like, we would love to see you on the other side of this. And so really seeking out some mentors in that case and made that leap. And when I went there, I was in the field. And so I I was working remote, which today seems pretty normal. Back then, I guess it didn't. But I was one of the first females as the account manager in the field and in the Southeast. So that was Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama. So it was it was a big shift. Yeah. And I didn't really know what to expect. And it was great. It was really great. I think people were like, oh, how did that go? You were the first female. I was like, no, it was it was good. Like it was it was fun. What a cool brand to work for. Bobcat is such a iconic brand for compact equipment. Yeah. And I'm sure you felt that at the time, especially sort of that loyal fan base, if you will, from your customers. Is that true? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, you're lucky probably if once in your career, you can work somewhere where they're number one, right? Where they have like the best market share where they have. And so I didn't take that for granted. It was really neat to see. And I think meeting with the customers so often, we traveled a lot. You would see they're like little kids, like, you know what I mean? Like they loved it. Like it's their toy. Yeah. 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 And I mean, (laughs) sure. Where I am today too, we'll get to that, but they love it. You know, we were driving tractors last week. We were bringing them up to our headquarters. Uh, We have a training facility about a half a mile down the street and there's five or six of us standing there. And I was like, all right, who's, who's taking what let's go. And we were just, you know, having a, a parade up the street. And that was a fun Friday afternoon. That is so cool. You know, I started my career in mining. So being able to drive the big trucks, you just fall in love with this equipment and the way that the customers feel about it. One of the themes this season, as I've gotten to know women in these industries, is most people did start their career closer to the customer in the field right? and saw the change that was happening yeah. and, and felt that brand love and said, you know, I think part of the reason I stayed in the industry is because I got to experience that firsthand. Right. Was that true for you? I think making, and again, OEMs, like they're built very similar. They have the same problems, the same stresses. I think when they have dealer networks, where we are in our growth cycle is you have these, the parents are retiring and you have new people coming in and there's all these different changes. But I think, I think for agriculture versus construction, construction, you know, you're looking at a big project or a series of projects you're looking at funding for it you're looking at, okay we're we're in the middle of it what's our next biggest thing i think with ag one of the first meetings i had we were on the phone with a customer panel and it was is there drought this year what does corn look like and it really that hits close to home i think that 
we all get kind of bogged down with our everyday emails and such, and especially newer people to the company, they don't realize what an impact we have, what an impact that our equipment, because we don't just sell machines, what we're bringing to these farmers and what the farmers are bringing to us, right? I mean, they're literally putting food on our tables. And I think we, we forget that there's such a leap and it's so easy to, to be disconnected. But I think that's what keeps the passion. And when you talk to different people, it's like, why are you here? And it's, you see that passion with our executives, you see it through the farmers, through our field people. And it's really impactful. And it's, I mean, it's stressful. Like you want to make sure that they have what they need, right? Absolutely. Well, and I love that bent that you paint for us is it's not just selling products into an industry. This is people's livelihood. And this is just one tool to get the job done. But I think that's as a marketing firm, what we always try to keep in focus is these customers, they care so much and it makes your work that much more meaningful when you keep that in focus. So talk a little bit about your transition to Agco then. I was in the field for Bobcat. I had, I have two little guys. I have a a six-year-old son and an 18-month-old son. So they keep me busy. But I, at the time I had my oldest and he was, he was little and I was traveling a lot and looking at a, a different opportunity. So I had moved up to Atlanta with Doosan and worked the heavy equipment side. So like you were saying, the mining, the bigger wheel loaders, dump trucks and that, and had the opportunity I'm trying to remember how long it was, but had the opportunity to come over to Agco and it was literally down the street, you know, very close to my house. And so it was like, oh, this is similar dealer network. Obviously, like we just talked about the passion for ag and we just hit it off right away with this team and was really excited to see the growth here. We have a new CEO that at the time was about to step in, hadn't yet when I came on. And so we have a lot of growth going on constantly. You know, we're still a pretty young company. We own a lot of older companies, but like Massey Ferguson, we're just doing so much. And it's really exciting to see the movement. I'm lucky enough every day to work with our C-suite and see, you know, what's next on the horizon. And it's so encouraging to see this growth. That's great. Well, I love how you talk about the historical legacy part of a brand like this, right? And a lot of times it is sort of through mergers and acquisitions that you have to like figure out that brand architecture. So what part of your job now, can you explain what you do in a day-to-day to take all this to market? I know that your podcast more often talks about marketing, right? So we don't have a corporate marketing lane. And so in our group, we'll really work globally with our partners on if they're looking at some new branding, if they're looking at new campaigns, if they're role, if we're bringing in a new company, you know, what is that going to look like? How is that going to fold in? So every day is very different. One of the main things that I do is work with our C-suite to prep them for uh, interviews or podcasts like this. So normally I'm on the other side of this. We're working on a new website. And so we have engaged globally probably 30 of our partners to say, what do you want? Like, how do you want the farmer to feel when they get here? You know, what do you need them to have? And we have over 30 brands. So we go across the whole crop cycle. We're the only pure play OEM in the world just for agriculture. So 
everything we do, you know, we're we're measuring and looking at at all of our our various businesses and making sure it's the best thing for everybody. And so that's fun. It's complex, but it makes every day very different. That's exciting. And are there specific growth strategies you guys are working through within those 30 brands? Just in North America, you know, we have Fent, which is one of our larger brands in Germany. We call it the Mercedes of tractors. It's probably not part of our growth strategy. But, <laughs> but, you know, we're trying to expand that in North America and looking at those markets and how we can bring that forward. And that's fun. We've partnered with Luke Bryan there. So you've probably seen a little bit of that. I love that so much. Very cool. You're managing a lot. You're working with the C-suite. I thought it was interesting that you said you don't have like a marketing vertical. How does that work? Does that live within all of your different brands and locations? Yeah. So it lives in our comms team. It does. It gets a little bit messy. We, unlike most, well, I guess it's tech companies, right? You hear about a lot of layoffs right now in the economy, but we're growing rapidly. So we have been working a lot with our HR department on recruitment and what does that look like? And it's so much the same as, hey, here's our marketing campaign and our plan and here's our strategy, you know, here's our goals. It isn't, but it's different because you're looking at human capital and what does that look like? So I've never done that, but it's fun to be uncomfortable and try it in a different way. I mean, it's very much the same steps, you know, what are we going for? Been working on that a lot lately, just trying to get, Trying to recruit, you know, we're recruiting a ton of tech talent. We are really leaning into precision ag, which I'm sure you hear a lot about in the market. You know, what does autonomy look like? All of that. And so working with the HR team on that, I think it's just, it's a little different than saying we're going to do it all because we can't. And because we have our brand partners globally that they have huge comms and marketing teams. So it's really just being an advisor to them and trying to, to guide them through what's going to be best for AGCO. That theme of leveraging marketing and communication skill sets to attract talent has been very prevalent this season. So many of the brands that we work with are coming to us saying, you know what, we don't really need to sell product. That's kind of selling itself right now. It's more about finding the people and making sure our employment brand strategy aligns to that the type of people we see. If you take money off the table what else are you selling? Like, and some people that's really hard to say. And we just talked about we're feeding the world and that's what we say. We're sustainably feeding the world. And so what, what does that look like? Do you have a purpose to your career? Do you have a purpose to go into work every day? You know, what gets you excited? You're not just punching a time card anymore. Absolutely. And do you feel that that culture is baked into both your current employee base in terms of them feeling engaged and empowered when they come to work and part of your recruiting strategy now? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, more than ever, our recruitment strategy, that's, I just finished a a print ad, which I never do. And it says, do you want to sustainably feed the world? Like that's, yeah. I was like, I'm just going to keep this one simple. I have three hours to do it. Like, yes. That's great. So talk a little bit too about your, your dealer network then. You mentioned that earlier as one of the ways that companies in these industries have very similar challenges. So how does that work within your different brands? It just depends. Some of them carry all of our brands. Some of them carry one or two. Some of our dealers are huge cat dealers that you deal with every day. And some of them, the sales guy is the parts guy. So it's a smaller dealership. And so how do you cater to all of them? And how do you make sure that they get the right messaging and the right amount of attention that they need for all of their business? We really have to be the best partner we can be to them and the most supportive. Absolutely. 
I think that's one of my favorite things about working in these industries is understanding the sales channels and how that dovetails with marketing. Even in our conversation thus far, we've already talked about the internal communication, the end user communication, and then that the dealer is so critical in that. So I love working through that value chain. We were lucky enough to start a dealership in Kentucky and they have six locations. They're called Ag Revolution. I was talking to our dealer principal there the other day and it's you start with the customers and it's fun to go back and helping him with some some website technology stuff. And it's fun just said, I know you're so busy with everything else. Like, let me handle this piece because, you know, like they're just they're getting hit with everything left and right. And and you forget that when you sit in your office, you forget that there's a lot more going on out there. Yeah, absolutely. So curious, what is your favorite aspect of working at Agco? I think one of my favorite things is when I talk to our C-suite, just how excited they are about what's next. Everybody's really passionate and they're all really nice. And I'm not just saying that, like you read these horror story novels about people in the C-suite. That's not us. Our CEO is one of the nicest people you've ever met. And so I think it's really exciting to see what's next and to see that the growth that we have and to be a part of that. Absolutely. I find that leaders in this industry grew up in these industries, so they tend to be really hardworking, down to earth, easy to talk to, and sounds like that's your experience as well. Let me ask you a little bit about what it's been like to be a woman in a traditionally male-dominated field. When I think back over the course of my 20 years in industry, there's been ways that I show up differently, I think, as a leader and as a marketer because of the experiences I've had working with, in many ways, what are very male-dominated rooms. So as you look back at your career, how do you think that's changed you? What are two or three things that you do today because of the fact that you were one of the only women when you started. I don't have anything profound here, but I will say that when I started in sales, somebody said to me, and I don't know who it was, they said, "You, if you just wear a skirt and a low-cut top, you'll get the sale. And I said, I'm going to wear a turtleneck and pants and I'll still get the sale. I also think it's maybe, I don't know if you have to work harder. I'm I'm about equality. I just, you have to know your product. Like everybody needs to know their product. I don't care if you're male or female or what you are. You got to know what you have, regardless if you're in sales or not, right? So I think it's, you have to work hard. You have to know what you have. I also don't, don't make waves. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to be somebody in the room that I shouldn't be. I just, I'm going to speak my mind. So I think that something really interesting that I figured out a few weeks ago is we have male leaders that say, keep your head down and grind. And I heard one of our female leaders say, make sure that you're known in the room, make sure that people are advocating for you, make sure that you're seen. And I asked her about that. And my my dad always said that, just keep your nose to the ground, right? And I asked her about that. And she said, it's not the same for females. They have to find people that are going to advocate. They have to work hard to be seen. I was like blown away. Do you have an opinion on that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's true. I think it's unfortunate, but I think it's true. Like I think if, you know, and being seen in the right way, there's obviously a balance. No, I I definitely think that's true. As much as I believe in putting your head down and doing a lot of hard work, you're never going to hear me not say that. 
it's also about keeping your head up and looking at the opportunities around you so you can uniquely figure out how to plug in and add value to the organization, which obviously you've done that or else you wouldn't be where you are, where there are certain mentors along the way or certain spheres of influence that you found yourself in that definitely helped you connect dots and add value quickly? You know, I think it's a collective I heard somebody say a few weeks ago, mentors don't have to be somebody that's your boss or higher up than you. They can be your peers. So I think it's I think it's been a collective along the way, looking at the strong female leadership and understanding what their convictions are and why they're in those roles. And also, you know, there's males, females, it, it doesn't matter. Just I think looking at people that believe in what they do and they're doing it for the right reasons, right? I think, you know, you're quickly realizing what's right and wrong and everywhere in between. And so, yeah, I think I've seen that throughout my career. It's great. Have you noticed anything about the industry evolving or changing as it relates to gender diversity and inclusion, equity, as you mentioned, since you started? Has there been a much bigger focus? And what what have you seen specifically maybe at AGCO about the change in corporate culture there? We do in our sustainability report, we have a diversity goal of 30% women in leadership by 2030. So we're really working hard for that. We have other initiatives that we're constantly working on throughout the organization. I myself have just entered a leadership program for 18 months. Uh, There's 45 people around the globe that have been picked to enter this program and we'll do an internal project with our coaches, and then we'll also do some executive training. And so that's that's really exciting. And there's people, again, from all over, male, female, but every country, you know. So that's just a few things we're doing and excited to be a part of that journey. I'm excited to learn more about that. We have a, a leadership layer here at Symantle that's fairly new to the organization. You know, turnover is common in our industry. We have a young sort of like vibrant creative talent, but at the same time, so you're working on a global project and also getting mentorship. Is that what you said? We have a third party that came in. And so we'll do courses from Harvard Business School, from Terry, like from all the big business schools in the United States. We'll do specific courses and then we'll team up and do projects and we'll meet. I think we meet once a quarter in person and then we'll meet monthly and we'll meet with our coaches as well monthly. So that's so cool. I love that idea. I'm going to steal it and, and make I'm it excited. into our own. That's great. Yeah, I'll send you, I'll send you what it is. I would love um, that. I'm excited though. We started it last month. So we'll just, I think we get our coaches in like two weeks. I'm a big fan of coaching. So you'll have to let me know how that goes. <laughs> Yeah. So you mentioned being a mom. So talk a little bit about work-life balance. I'll be the first to admit that I'm not sure that that's always a thing. I'm much more of a believer that you have to be sort of fully in and present, whether you're at work or at home and, and feel sort of unapologetic about that. But I'm curious of your points of view on the subject. So my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And I think it's hard for her to understand. She stays with us in the winter and I can see the judgment. Maybe that's all moms. It's hard to say. I don't know if there is a balance. I have I have a good nanny that I pay too much money to or maybe not enough. I don't know. And my husband has more flexibility than I do. So he he does school pick up and drop off. So, yeah, he's I'm jealous of that for sure. Yeah, I'm I'm a little jealous of it. My first one I had major mom guilt. I mean, I felt guilty going to the gym for 45 minutes, like major, like nobody told me you're going to feel like that terrible. And then my second one, I was like, 
I'm not going to do this to myself. I don't have time. Like just going to be there when I can. And when I'm not, I'm not. So yeah, I, I don't, I don't think anybody, I'm not trying to be like the perfect mom and make crafts and things like that. I see, you know, my friends are like, I just made all these crafts. And like, I just went on Amazon and ordered some stuff for tomorrow night's baseball game. I'm like, well, that's done. Absolutely. Well, it's awesome that you're able to sort of, because I've had to be on this journey, right? Prioritizing yourself so that you can take care of everything else. And now I just, I don't lost the guilt. I still haven't been back to the gym in like six years, but. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, circling back, talking a little bit more about your job. So specific issues impacting the industry. You mentioned a little bit about the position planning. You mentioned, you know, the need for talent. What else is a big focus for your agco right now? Yeah. So it's really higher yields with less inputs. And what does that mean? You know, it's sustainability, looking at the carbon output, looking at how much are we disturbing the earth. It's autonomy, this race to autonomy. I think it's more prevalent in the construction business. I think that when you compare tractors to airplanes versus tractors to cars, that is where you're going to see the complexity of everything a tractor does. And so it's really hard to take the operator out of the seat before all of those functions are autonomous. That's a drumbeat lately. We talk about that a lot because people say, well, why is the farmer still in the seat? And it's the tractor itself does so many different things on the farm and there's so many different environmental reactions that it has. And so we're really working hard to make components autonomous. So we make four things autonomous over here and we make a few over here and we've added AI to our sprayers so it can detect what a weed is and what it's not. What does that look like? And so we're also looking at retrofit first. Only 5% of farmers buy new machines every year. So we're looking at that 95%. How do we go after them? How do we get in front of them? So retrofit means any kind of machine, any brand, any OEM, they can implement this AI technology on your sprayers. They can implement different types of functionality that is going to just help them, even with their older machines. And so we're really charging forward with that. And it's fun to watch. Like it's, it's a good problem to have. <laughs> With so many large and competing in some ways issues to address for your customers, how do you guys prioritize? Yeah, so again, it's it's what's going to make the most impact to the farmer. It really is farmer first. What's the most important thing to the farmer? How are we going to improve yield? How are we going to get more out of their crops? How are we going to grow more? How are they going to send more to market, right? That's how we decide what's going to make the most impact to them. I imagine just because of how many products you have, what a highly matrixed organization you are, that you have to get pretty personalized and targeted in your messaging. And you mentioned your website earlier. So I'm curious how you guys are evolving from more of a traditionally relationship-based business to leveraging data and technology to really tell the right story at the right time to the right customer. It's pretty complex. I think a lot of people that have like the corporate brand versus the parent-child relationship. So I think it's how do you tell that story without taking away from the brands? So you start there. Who is Agco? Because Agco doesn't sell tractors. Massey and Fence and Gleaner, and, you know, everybody else sells tractors. So 
What does that look like? You know, we look at our analyst, we look at our farmers, we look at our dealers, we look at our suppliers. How are they getting to us and getting to us quickly? And so I think it's making sure that we're getting the farmer the solution they're looking for as quickly as possible. And that might not be the brand they think they need. It might be, you know, a different brand they hadn't worked with before. And so I think that's where we're starting is how do we imagine that? You know, how is that solution finder working? And then how are we pushing them through or how are we getting to that analyst, which is a very different hat to wear, right? That's just, it's a different profile. So what does that intersection look like? And and what's everybody looking for? It's exciting though. It's probably the third big website refresh I've done. It's fun to, to watch it come through. And I had somebody the other day say, when is it going to be done? And I said, when it's really good. Like, I'm not giving you a date. And they're like, what do you mean? I was like, this year, this year, don't worry. I was like, but it's going to be great. I'm not going to push a deadline. I'm just going to make it great. This almost sounds like you guys are evolving from traditional branding to real customer experience and all those touch points and making it easier for your customers to do business. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. You're using your website platform to do that, but really thinking through that process is the fun part of it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we're looking at all those profiles and making sure we're getting them what they need. And to your point on MarTech, I guess that's what they call it now, right? You know, leaning into that, how are we, how are we making that technology work for us? All right. So tell me a little bit about you as a leader. I'm curious, some of your core beliefs or philosophies, accomplishments you're proud of. Give us some lessons learned from your time on the job. So I don't talk about myself that much. So this is a hard one. <laughs> <laughs> it can be uncomfortable. Yeah, it I is. Know. It's uncomfortable. As a leader, I was thinking about this this morning. I think it's really important to empower your people. I think it's really important to understand people's learning styles. And I think when you understand how your employees or your peers learn and communicate, that's when the good stuff happens. I would rather pick up the phone and talk to somebody than have them write me a three paragraph email, right? But I work with a lot of people that feel the opposite, enabling them to do what they need to do to communicate. And I think that we move so fast and say, get this done, this done, this done but we're not maybe communicating it in the way that they learn. And so they might not be hearing us, might not be reading the email and understanding. And I think that when people are struggling, that's like, instead of saying, well, this isn't working or they don't get it. I think you have to step back and say that. And I don't think we do it enough. Yeah. Put yourself in their shoes, give benefit of the doubt, all those things are really important too in the day-to-day. But yeah, I mean, people really do have very different styles. And I just think we talk about compassion a lot in today's world. And we talk about understanding and all of that. But there really is this vastly different style that people have. And we worry about it when they're in school, but we don't worry about it after the fact. Well, and I think so much of good business is just comes down to strong communication. Is there a tool or a program that AGCO uses to understand those different communication styles or those personality differences that the whole organization has adopted? I don't think we have one. We have like 12 that we use and we've done a bunch of them on our team. And yes, I think every department says, let's do this, especially when you have a new leader come in or do a reorg or something like that. And so what does that look like? Yeah, we definitely look at those a lot. I just, I think, again, we, we run and go as fast as we can and say, here's our 20 things, let's just get it. 
And if you don't establish what works. How big is your team? So our team, our corporate comm team is only nine people. Wow. You guys do a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we do a lot. But again, our brand teams are big. They have comms people. They have marketing people. What about some failures? Is there any lessons learned or can you think back about some times when you kind of made a big mistake and learned something from it? I think what's interesting is it's a small world and people are always going to come back around so you don't burn bridges. And I don't know that I've burned a lot. Hopefully not. I think it's amazing how often people come back into your life. I think that's so true. And I forget that sometimes, but it's always nice when they do. It's important to maintain that kindness. Absolutely. What about secrets of success, advice you would pass on to others? Is there something that you share, especially with women who might be just starting their careers in this industry? Speak up. Don't try to be who you're not. Just be honest. I always think back and say, what would my 25-year-old self say? And that was a long time ago. Don't get too worked up. Uh, It's not brain surgery. I think that's something that I've been working on, just that, you know, maintaining your composure because your energy like spills over onto other people. But I think we get better at that as we sort of grow up in the business world. I think it's like reputation in in this role. It's writing, reputation management. It's all of that. It's definitely a different level of like staying even when when things come across your desk and you're like, (laughs) what? Like it's, it's a different level of you know, emotional intelligence. Because I imagine part of your group is crisis management to some degree, right? You do a lot of corporate public affairs type work. Yeah. 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 Can you share a story with us maybe, even if you have to do it in veiled cover of a crisis moment? I mean, I can just share COVID. That was crazy. I bet. (laughs) (laughs) The whole season. Yeah. I think, you know, COVID was nuts. I remember they sent us home on March 13th. It was, yeah, it was March 13th. And they sent us home. And then that Saturday, our HR, our president of HR for North America at the time said, I need you to, called me and said, I I need you to send communications out about the office. And I was like, (laughs) I don't do internal comms. I didn't say that. I just said, what do you need? That became just day, it was just 14 hour days of that. Then I was doing marketing for North America at the time, so the brands for North America. And so we had campaigns scheduled to go out, and the messaging was, I was like, that's offensive now. You can't send it out. Like, we can't. And so it was stopping. And then what are we going to do? How are we going to say, you know, something meaningful? And so doing a video series and then, and again, at the same time, now there's a group of us standing this up, but we're we're sending out almost daily emails to the North American employees, which again was just completely out of scope, but I learned quickly what they needed and then getting them marketing materials to put up in the office. And in some ways, like our office still looks like March 13th of 2020 (laughs) because not everybody's come back. But on top of that, it was okay, now all our dealerships are closed. So we had to get a virtual showroom stood up. And then what really good that came out of this was we needed to apply for financing online, which seems, why wouldn't you do that already? But there's a lot of financial rules that go into that. So we had our finance arm stand that up. And 
that's been wildly successful since, but it was just all of these, how are we going to do it? And nobody knew what to do. I liken it. I was thinking about this last night. I liken it to, I used to cover New Orleans when I was in the field and I liken it to hearing stories about Katrina because they never stopped telling like it was, this is what happened when, and we stopped and this is what's happened since. And that's what it reminds me of like a big major disruption. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but so much good, right? So many innovative ideas and strategies and processes came out of having to like force ourselves to push through that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. Oh, I love learning about that. We'll get back to the rest of the interview in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Symantle. I happen to know a thing or two about them because I'm one of the owners. Symantle is an industrial consumer marketing firm with an obsessive focus on customer experience. We not only execute killer marketing campaigns, but we help organizations align around goals, audiences, messages, channels, and tactics to create more than campaigns, but programs that align to business strategies. Symantle has 40 years experience crafting positive, engaging customer experiences at every point in the consumer journey. And if you like what you hear on this podcast, head to symantle.com slash blog for more content. You'll find articles, tips and tricks, do-it-yourself tools, webinars, and more to help you keep learning and growing right along with us. All right. So my last question, and I ask every guest this, I'm curious, what's something that you're personally wrestling with that you'd love help solving right now? Oh, I did think about this one. This is a good one. I don't even know what year this was. We came out with QR codes and then we did away with them. And then all of a sudden in 2020, we brought them back. I know. Well, our phones started working differently, right? So they can read them now without the, yeah, I know. Yeah. But I'm like, how did we get here? And how do people still say, oh, that's old news. And I'm like, how did we live without QR codes? I know. So you guys are using them extensively then? Yes. When I, when I have influence over it, absolutely. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah. What do you think about that? Same question you have. Why did they go away? And then they're coming back strong. But we actually launched a program at last Con Expo that leveraged QR codes. And it was right at the time when our phones were starting to change. So we had to completely unplug a technology and plug a new one in because of the way the phones worked. So we have a crisis moment around that that I can re reflect back to. But yeah, it's the big thing in marketing. Should you use them or should you not? Well, I don't know why you wouldn't. Like, I don't want to type in a URL anymore. Right. Right? Are <laughs> you doing it at BizCon Expo? Like, are your clients doing it now? Yeah, we have a little bit of like almost a scavenger hunt style program that leverage QR codes. And so we can capture leads that way and we can direct people to their next stop. So it's a definitely an, an important technology that I think all marketers should be using at some level. Okay. I'll have to share that with you offline. You may be able to use it in your event strategy. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. like it. Cool. Awesome. All right. Well, so nice to meet you again. Anybody from Agco, I love getting to know because you guys are such a powerhouse brand and I hope we can keep in touch. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Well, there you have it. I'm so proud to bring you episodes this season from the hardworking women in leadership and decision-making roles getting it done at Heavy Industry Brands. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget you can check out more episodes of the podcast at our marketingsweats.com website or find us wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. That's a wrap for today. Keep up the good work, friends, and we'll chat again soon. Music.